Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. Today, we talk to Texas Ranger Sergeant Drew Pilkington about incendiary fires as a cover for murder. They'll discuss a tragic quadruple domestic violence homicide where a fire also occurred. A little later in the podcast, we'll explain how a new CFITrainer.net feature, official transcripts, can help you provide verified documentation of your training. We'll close with recent news stories about fires sparked by pyrotechnics at gender reveal parties. As always, we hope you'll share the podcast with your peers or reach out to us via the feedback form on this page. Fatal fires are always devastating and probably one of the toughest things to cope with in the fire service. But when that fire may be a cover for another crime like murder, the investigation takes on a new dimension. With us today to talk about fire as a cover for murder is Texas Ranger Sergeant Drew Pilkington of the Texas Department of Public Safety. He's been with the Texas DPS for 22 years, first as a highway patrol trooper, then a criminal investigation division agent, and now as a Texas Ranger. He also serves on the statewide Texas Rangers major crime scene team. Sergeant Pilkington is a fire and arson investigator with the Victoria County Fire Marshal's Office and a Victoria County Fire Department volunteer firefighter. He's an IAAI FIT and an IAAI ECT, as well as a commissioned Texas fire and arson investigator, fire instructor, and police instructor. Sergeant Pilkington, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you. It's good to have you on, and we appreciate your time. So, I, I, you know, a lot of people don't get to go to Texas, but we hear a whole lot about your country. So uh, why don't you tell us what it's like to work for uh work in Texas, in your area specifically, for the Rangers? It's really good. I'm in, located in South Texas. And so Texas, obviously, the, as large as it is, the different regions and different areas has its own diversities and advantages. Um, down here, we deal a lot more with heat and humidity. But it's a really good area. To, it's been a great career uh, with the Department of Public Safety, where the state police of Texas and particularly in the Texas Rangers, we're the primary criminal investigative agency for the state. We assist the local agencies uh, in areas that they may not have expertise, experience, training, or equipment. And most of my days are assisting local sheriff's office and police departments uh, with criminal investigations. Most of them are, are violent or heinous crimes, and others are just complex whether it be a white collar or public corruption type crime. All right. Thanks for that background. So let's get to our focus now and talk about fire investigations when a fatality is involved. How does that change your investigation? In Texas, we have the state fire marshal's office, which is the, they do the primary uh, origin and cause investigations. And once a fatality or, or a death has been discovered within the fire, they usually uh, utilize the Texas Rangers or local agency to then assist with that death investigation. That's where, where I come in with the state, with the Texas Rangers, to assist with the, not just the death investigation, um, but more specifically focusing if it is a homicidal death. So a fire investigator is out there on the scene. Um, they find a body. They put out a phone call and you head out. That's correct. Uh, for the most part, my local agencies keep me aware of what's going on. Um, regular fires, it's, they're not just calling me, telling me, hey, there's a regular fire. But once a dispatcher, once a, a investigator learns that there's 
been a, a, a body discovered, been there's a death within the fire, they'll notify me. If they haven't reached out to the state fire marshal's office themselves, I'll reach out to them. And we have a, a cooperative working uh, response. They respond. I'll assist with processing the scene for them and digging out the fire. When we get to the body, we work the body together. And then particularly once it becomes a homicide, uh, determined homicide through obvious means or autopsy, uh, I work with then the local, whether it's a sheriff's department or police department, in furthering that criminal investigation. So you're at the scene now. There's a fatality. What changes physically? I mean, is there, you know, is, is the scene more secure? What do you do differently? The main thing is to slow down. Now the focus is uh, particular attention to around the body's mechanism of injury, uh, other items that may be involved, starting to look at the environment and the position. And was this accidental? Was it uh, in, in the midst of an escape? Or um, could this have been an intentional act? Yeah, and I, I you know, our conversation today is about how people try to cover up uh, homicide by using fire. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking uh, we'll get in, into a little bit of that as we move ahead here. But can you give us uh, a, an outline of a death investigation process? So, so now that you know there's this fatality, you have, you know, you've gotten to the body. What, who are the different people that are involved and, and what are their roles? How do they interact? So in the main part, we start off with the obviously the fire investigator here and, and taking that one step back to to the, the line firefighter who discovered the body. And and whether it was discovered during suppression or during overhaul, or unfortunately if it was missed and then, you know, discovered a little bit later. Hmm. We have to figure out who, who discovered the body and Understanding the the surroundings, that area immediately around the body is so important and contains so much evidence. And that's when I say we slow down. That's the we really focus on um, the type of evidence that you're looking for in the sifting and going through the debris uh, to to look for it. It might even be as small as a bullet projectile, let alone a you know a, a sharp object or blunt force object. So then we step then next to the fire investigator. Now the fire investigator deals with the body, and then so some investigators are commissioned law enforcement or sworn law enforcement. Uh, some are purely just investigators. So that that determines the role of how much or, or how much authority I have to bring as a police officer to that investigation, or how much of a, a cooperative working effort we're going to have because we can both, uh, uh, you know, criminally work that fire together. What other folks show up supporting your investigation uh, from a forensics perspective? Depending on the area, uh, a local, so a local entity, whoever is a jurisdiction, have an authority. Um, like I said, it's going to be the sheriff's office if it's in an unincorporated area or a police department. And, their detectives, their homicide detectives will show up. Um, most of my agencies, we're dealing with agencies that might have six to eight officers. So they don't have the means or ability to have a dedicated crime scene unit. Larger ones do. 
uh, you know, they'll bring their crime scene unit, crime scene techs out. But for the most part, I'm working hand in hand with just another homicide investigator who is the one typically processing evidence, fingerprints, collecting fingerprints, collecting evidence. So there's a lot of educating going on in directing on how I want them to collect the evidence to ensure that it's collected properly, packaged properly, preserved. Yeah, as it seems these days, uh, the fire investigator's role in the leadership becomes bigger and bigger all the time and the amount of information you need to have. So interesting. Uh, more, I've spoken to quite a few people who say, you know, <laughs> we, we wish we had these big units, but a lot of times we're out doing all of this ourselves. So uh, Yes, and, and educating, you know, and you always you have those that want to help, you know, and it's that fine line of, you know, you know, understand you want to help, but then to preserve the integrity of the evidence, the collection, the processing to ensure that it's admitted in the court, you know, it's kind of like, please let me do my job. Well, that might lead us into my next question, which was, you know, about common pitfalls when there's been a fire death. One of the largest is, is moving the body prematurely or unnecessarily destroying evidence unintentionally. Okay. Um, let's talk specifically about incendiary fire being used to cover up a homicide or as an actual method of homicide. How does an investigator identify that this has happened rather than the person dying from a fire in an accidental or unintentional manner? One of the most pronounced ways is through the uh, post-mortem examination which particularly would be the autopsy. Okay. And using the pathologist, using them to have that determination, uh, which is your scientific forensic evidence utilized in court. You're having now a doctor testify to the cause or manner of death. It's interesting that you go right to that because, you know, you started out by saying, hey, we've got to be so careful not to move the body, not to do anything to mess with the evidence. And Obviously, there's a lot of important work that's happening right there, but this incredibly powerful uh, tool of, of having an autopsy is there down the road. So um, interesting. And, and, and obviously, I guess not moving that body and, and doing whatever you can do to preserve that evidence can only help uh, with the autopsy, I guess. Correct. Just like, like in, in fire service and law enforcement, everybody has their specialties. And so knowing when you find a pathologist that has a very good knack at understanding what the body goes through um, in a fire, whether it's uh, post-mortem, perimortem, you know, at the time of death or, or you know, pre-death, really aids in their report and their findings that supplement and facilitate your investigation. And for us, it's almost incumbent that we attend every autopsy for our death investigations. As simple as it might seem, if it's just a, a, a what we call questionable deaths, you know, which may just be natural, uh, maybe accidental, maybe suicide. But by taking that time and going there and observing the autopsy, which we have that ability here uh, through our facilities, and I understand some facilities don't let you observe, but making that relationship with that doctor talking to them, what, you know, let them educate you just as much as they want to be educated about the scene. 
bring your bring your crime scene photos with you. Hey, Doc, let me explain the scene to you. This is what I saw. This is what we had. This is what we found. And then as they're going through the autopsy, asking those questions because the more involved you are, the more the doctor is going to like you and say, this person cares about this investigation and they want to learn more. They want to know. And it gives them the buy-in that we need. To come, not saying that they're not going to not do a great job, but uh, the more buy-in they have into this investigation and understanding it will help you in the long run. Yeah. Um, great to hear it. It's interesting because I was, one of my questions was going to be, you know, on television, we always see the investigator go in to the autopsy, the autopsy. Does that really happen? And you already told us, yeah. Um, but you said in some cases it, it can or cannot happen. Um, so let's say you're a fire investigator or, or fire officer working a scene with a fire death and you recognize the possibility that the fire may have been set to cover a homicide or actually cause the death. What changes uh, when this possibly first arises? What do you do? I mean, I, I heard you say slow down and Correct. contact some other resources. Contact resources and scene security. Um, that's that's one of the uh, big big issues that we have is is controlling scene access, scene security, and evidence contamination. Um, obviously, if it does go to trial, that's going to come in the question of who all was there. You know, who possibly could have had access to this area and contaminated the area, cross-contaminated it. You know, we, we hate to think that they had a malicious intent to alter the area. Mm -hmm. um, but knowing who is there, so as a fire officer, you're on scene, your crew tells you, you know, uh, you know we've, we've discovered a body, Okay where first is where and and start working that perimeter out okay if that area is secure and can be sealed secure it you know seal it post a firefighter as guard if if that's all you have if not a responding officer and start working your way out to the entire scene so the so you can encompass the entire scene as we typically put up the yellow barrier tape all the way around you know realize what is our primary crime scene so you have a specific case example. I, I think it was the, the Compion Lane fire. Yes. Am I saying that right? Yes, uh, uh, Compion. Compion, okay. And could you talk a little bit about uh, the city, where it was at, and how you experienced it, um, how you became involved with the case? So in this particular fire happened in January 2015. It's in a uh, rural area of Calhoun County. Calhoun County is on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, East side of Texas. Of, uh, so, uh, south, um, a little bit on the, the southeast uh, side. It's about two hours south of Houston area. Or, or an hour maybe north of Corpus Christi, I guess. Correct. Okay. Yep, almost in between the two. And um, in this particular area, it's... Um, the residence was located just outside the city limits of Port Lavaca. Uh, Port Lavaca is the main, it's the, the county seat in the main uh, city. There's you know, two other smaller cities within that county. It's a pretty small rural county. Um, uh, I would say the population is not more than 20 to 30,000. Mm -hmm. 
with rural, uh, 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 I believe they have a paid on-call fire department. And so how did you become involved in the case and what, what was your role? So I became involved, the fire, uh, the fire was reported uh, early in the morning, about 4.40 or so in the morning. Once sunlight came up later that morning is when they, did, they, reviewed, they discovered, uh, you know, observed a deceased individual located in the structure. Additionally, three other children were then reported you know, missing. And so with, with that, it, it's, it, they weren't readily found in the structure. So, you know, we're thinking, did, did um, a relative take them? Did somebody else have them? And so the local fire department contacted the state fire marshal's office directly. They responded out uh, when they observed the victim. Uh, it was quite apparent that she had uh, had several stab wounds on her, a uh, visible trauma to her body. And so the sheriff's office contacted me uh, in and around the same time the state fire marshal's office had contacted me and requested my assistance to come down to help them with this. Rough story. Um, had to be tough, tough to work. So uh, you show up, you're, you know, I'm guessing at this point you're brought to the scene uh, to examine the female victim. Uh, how did they find the children? And that's where, like you said, as a rough story, it, it's the, uh, I mean, that's just the, the, the saddening part of our job and where, you know, it's like how much worse can it get? Um, there were two other state fire marshal investigators there with me, Dean Shirley and, was the um, was the main investigator, and um, say the name was, of the main investigator again. You you dropped out for a second. Dean Shirley. Okay. And so Dean Dean was out there. He and um, as, as the main investigator who who uh, I dealt with, and he had his canine uh, uh, state fire marshal canine captain was out there, Tommy Pleasant. And so between Dean, Tommy. Uh, and Todd Josie was another investigator out there. So the four of us, I mean, it was like, hey, unfortunately what we see in a lot of rural environments, you know, where we're working together is they're like, hey, body inside and everybody leaves or everybody backs up, right? I don't want anything to do with this. So between the the, the five of us basically is we're, we're processing this scene as we're going through. I'm assisting them as they're working the fire. We know we have a... Um, one body inside and we're still trying to locate the children. And as we're going through this structure is when we find the charred remains of what we believe were two children. And these children, uh, the, the, the victim self was the 23 year old mother. And okay. so we have a four year old boy and, and what we believe was a, a two year old girl. And we're still missing a two month old baby. Mm. And so on, as we're going through and again, just now it's, it's like, right. We're really going slow because the remains are, are heavily charred and the care you have to take packaging human remains to ensure when they get to the medical examiner for autopsy, they're 
in as good a condition as you can preserve them to be from when they're on scene. And that comes into, um, you know, other other crime scene classes and processing evidence and packaging evidence and, and you know, understanding um, the changes that they take just from transport. And it's as simple as like in this scene, our, our mortician came out and they bring an adult body back. And now we have, you know, at the time we believe two children and it's, you, you can't just adapt, right? I mean, they make children body bags, they make infant body bags. And so as part of the Texas Rangers, and uh, we have to carry our own bags too for these situations. So we're able to then package specifically in this crime scene processing. So you found at this point, you've got a person, uh, the mother who's obviously been stabbed. You found two of the, of the children and you're missing, uh, you're missing a baby. And, and, and how did, how, how did you find the child? So as we remove um, the, the, the two older children, um, and we're laying them down and by the means of how they were, they were all, they were laid on the bed together side by side. And so as we're photographing, documenting, uh, taking our measurements is when we realize, uh, through, uh, uh, identifying, uh, or visually observing, you know, the different, uh, uh, bones and structures is when we found the two month old baby was in between, the the four year old and the two year old and so all three were laying together. Hmm. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for doing a good investigation or a great investigation. I'm uh, so. How did how did you know? I, I'm guessing that your female victim. I'm not guessing. You told me um, that your female victim had obvious stab wounds. Um, Correct. So how did you find out about, about the children? So that, that came through um, the autopsy. And, and, and this, that was a huge uh, determining factor in the charges to be filed and ultimately um, the uh, a prosecution and what we found. And the pathologist was able to go through and it, it, this is a classic example where we're dealing with um, a, a, just a, a small, charred remains of a torso. And very easily, somebody can be like, you know, the, nobody can do anything with, with what you have there. Nobody can work with that. Why spend the money? You know, I mean, looking at it, you know, from the uh, authoritative side, right? Mm-hmm. Authorizing it. We we get into the autopsy and um, we utilize Travis County Medical Examiner's Office, which is a teaching hospital up in Austin. And through their work, they were able to find internal organs and find a single stab wound that entered the back through the lung and pierced the heart of the children. Mm. And so it's it's by that alone is was our means for identifying the the cause of death man well so a, a lot going on there um and i guess this realization changed the investigation so 
Tell us about the conclusion of the case. So with this, um, we had the obvious death, death of the, the mother. Um, they believe they determined uh, through trachea and other means that you know she was dead before the fire. With that was uh, you know had occurred with the three children, uh, and uh, they didn't have the airway and the other structures to determine whether you know they were alive or dead at the time of the fire. But we still have their death. Um, and so in Texas, uh, you have murder. Uh, intentionally causing the death of another, but then we have capital murder. Capital murder can be from the, you know, causing the death of a child less than 10 years old. Hmm. All three of our children were less than 10. So the suspect in this case is the, is the father of the three children, the husband of the, of our, our lady. Um, he had uh, turned himself, well, he, he showed up at the local hospital with self-inflicted wounds, and, you know, and tried to state that you know he might have been in a fight or something else, but we were later able to determine uh, they were all self-inflicted. Through our through our uh, video surveillance, we've seen him leaving that residence uh, prior to the same video showing the smoke appearing and then the fire. Uh, he had actually padlocked the the front door to the residence for people to not be able to escape. Mm. And so we charged him with the three counts of capital murder for each of the children and then one count of murder for the for the uh, his wife. And I'm guessing he's gone away for a long time. Correct. It's a uh, uh, capital murder the has a range from uh, the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. He took a plea agreement uh, for two life without parole uh, sentencings. Hmm. Boy, a rough story, but a, a lot to learn um, and, a, and a lot to share, which we're, we're very grateful for. And I, and I thank you for going through that again with us. Um, thanks for talking with us today. I know you were scheduled to teach a class on this at the uh, 2021 ITC. And unfortunately, just like with your autopsy, I can't believe that it was affected by COVID-19, but the uh, ITC was also canceled. And yes. uh, we'll look forward to a session of that class being rescheduled in the near future, I hope. Yes, looking forward to that. Yes, I mean, you know, valuable information. And I think uh, for, for everybody, just like the ITC, just the continual learning, it never stops. You, know, you pick something up, even though you've been there before, you're going to pick something up at the next class. Well, Sergeant Pilkington, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Ron. You'd be Good well. Day. Now for the news. CFITrainer.net has added new features to its transcript function that enable all registered users to refine their transcript entries by date and request that an official transcript be emailed to a person they designate. These features allow you to better tailor your transcript to meet a particular professional development need such as only the training completed during a specific time period for a recertification requirement. You can then email that transcript directly to the certifying organization. If you filter your transcript by a date range, that date range is applied to the downloadable and printable versions. You can use the clear link to reset the date filter. The official transcript feature allows you to provide independent proof of program completion. 
the official transcript is emailed directly to the designated individual, bears a watermark, and includes explanatory text to help the recipient understand how to interpret the transcript's information. Official transcripts can be generated in combination with using the date filter and, as such, will show only completed programs in that time frame. Both initial passes and refreshes appear on the transcript. In addition, all names that the user had on their account appear on the transcript so the recipient can verify that the sender of the transcript completed all the listed programs personally. CFITrainer.net keeps records of all official transcripts that each registered user sends, and the user can review this list at any time to verify a transcript has been sent. The sending registered user also receives a confirming email that the transcript has been sent. These features are now live, so feel free to check them out. Our final news item today is about a recent spate of deaths caused by explosions at gender reveal parties. If you're not familiar with this, it's become a trend for people expecting a baby to have a party where they reveal the baby's sex using a trick like cutting a cake colored pink or blue inside or popping a balloon with pink or blue confetti in it. Some people have decided that the way to make this reveal is with an explosion or a pyrotechnic display or a cannon confetti. Recently, several of these devices have caused deaths, injuries, and significant damage at these parties. In 2017, a gender reveal explosion in Arizona sparked a fire that burned 47,000 acres. In 2019, it happened in Florida. In 2020, a smoke bomb at a gender reveal ignited the El Dorado Fire in California. More than 20,000 people had to evacuate from the El Dorado Fire. Nearly 23 acres burned. The couple hosting that gender reveal party were indicted on 30 charges in July 2021, including involuntary manslaughter and the death of a firefighter who perished fighting the El Dorado blaze. At least three other people have been killed in gender reveal party explosions in the last two years, including a grandmother in Iowa, the father-to-be in New York, a male guest from Michigan. In all of these fatality cases, the explosive devices were homemade, including a cannon that functioned like a pipe bomb. This is an opportunity for fire investigators and safety educators to join together to educate the public on the dangers and the illegality of creating devices like this. Reach out to your local fire department, public educators, to talk about how you can bring this safety message, including through healthcare practitioners and family support educations. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a Fire Prevention and Safety Grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. We thank you for those contributions. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next time. For the IAAI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.